0: Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 113, Fashion and Clothing in the 14th Century. By the way, there are many days when I have wondered why English weather gets so much criticism. Today is not one of those days. So, if you're getting a kind of rushing sound in the background, that'll be the wind. Last week, we basked just a bit, in the victory, which was essentially what Edward did as the 60s opened. This week the title of the podcast is a little misleading, as a man who's a good candidate for the job of fashion editor for Oxfam, there's no way I could talk for 30 minutes on fashion in any era. So we have a few things to talk about today, connected with Edward's legislation in 1362 and 1363, which will include the sumptuary laws and something of medieval fashion but also include the arrival of justices of the peace and we will swing by prostitution as you do and the statute of pleading just to finish things off. There's little doubt that Edward's view in the 1360s was that he should enjoy the fruits of victory and be celebrated, lauded and magnified wherever he went. It's equally clear that while a lot of people wholeheartedly shared the view that Edward was something of a demigod, they also now confidently expected that the wages of victory would be an end to all that wartime taxation. And for much of the 60s, Edward was able to indulge them. After all those ransoms, he was not short of the bob or two. And although he made it quite clear that all those ransom payments were part of his own personal account and not to be spent on official business, it did at least mean that he had no need to ask for money to maintain the royal household, which did help the relationship with Parliament. Parliament also hit him with quite the stream of demands for legislation, in the form of petitions. And the one we're going to spend most of our time on today is that sumptuary law of 1363. Because in a manner of speaking, the sumptuary law arrived along with the world of fashion. I exaggerate for effect, of course, Because, of course, there's no one date we can point at for the arrival of such a thing, but during the 14th century, there comes about much, much more variety and range in what people wear. The sumptuary law itself, though, was born more of a general horror of social change. As we've noted before, Edward was anything but a social radical. So the law itself starts with a preamble that expresses the horror of social change very neatly, very neatly indeed the outrageous and excessive apparel of divers people against their estate and degree to the great destruction and impoverishment of all the land. Even better is the Elizabethan law, which, although being not for a couple of hundred years yet, expresses the same sentiments. The excess of apparel and the superfluity of unnecessary foreign wares thereto belonging now of late years, is grown by sufferance to such an extremity that the manifest decay of the whole realm generally is like to follow. By bringing into the realm such superfluities of silks, cloths of gold, silver, and other most vain devices of so great cost, for the quantity thereof, as of necessity, the monies and treasure of the realm is and must be yearly conveyed out of the same to answer the said excess. But also, particularly the wasting and undoing of a great number of young gentlemen, otherwise serviceable, and others seeking by show of apparel to be esteemed as gentlemen, who, allured by the vain show of those things, do not only consume themselves, their goods and lands which their parents left unto them, but also run into such debts and shifts as they cannot live out of danger of laws without attempting unlawful acts whereby they are not any way serviceable to their country as otherwise they might be. You must agree with me that that is quite the most magnificent preamble to any law, is it not? The old Bufti's charter, full of horror, with all the new fangling going on. I have to say that if Edward could see the colour of my daughter's hair, he would probably have a fit. But just as the working man had been told they must stick with the wages... They'd always been used to in the statute of labourers. Now here was the same message handed down to them about what they ate and they wore and not just the working man as well. merchants knights, gentry, indeed everyone. The law is pretty specific. There's really no messing about trying to protect people's sensitivities or sugarcoat the pill. I have put a summarised list up on Ye old website but here are some examples. By the way, When you see ye on all those shop and pub signs and things, are you aware of the fact that actually people are just mistaking the now defunct letter thorn for a Y? Thorn used to exist as the TH. So there you go. Fab fact. Anyway, sumptuary laws. Your lord's servant was to have meat or fish only once a day. And they could wear clothes, you'd be pleased to hear, but the cloth they wore could be worth no more than two marks and there's to be nothing of gold, silver, or silk. A yeoman could splash out a bit more, two pounds, but still no silver or gold. And if they went for a bit of fur, they could use rabbit, cat, or fox. If they happened to meet an ermine on its way home, they should just ignore it, rather than bashing it over the head and sticking it round their collar. Knights and squires should do exactly the same as it happens, though they could wear silk and silver. And they could wear miniver. Miniver, as you may know, is the fur of a stoat. If someone asks you what the difference is between that and the fur of a weasel, tell them it's weaselly recognised because it's totally different. Boom, and if you will, tish. And so the list goes on. Really careful definitions of how much these people could wear to make sure we don't get confused about people's station in life and that no one gets ideas above their station. Merchants and townspeople have their own set of rules which mainly reflect the different structure of their finances but also seem to suggest something of a ceiling to their ambitions. If you're a merchant with a £1,000 worth of goods and chattels then you get to be equated with a knight of £200 worth of land and rent the lowest rung of knight in the laws. So there's just a hint of a suspicion that if you're in a town you are NQOCD, not quite of the same social level. But I could be making that up. However, even magnates and barons had to be careful. There were some clothes reserved for royalty, such as ermine fur. Grand ladies could wear jewels in their hair and so on, but not sewn into their clothing. That was a royal prerogative only. Given all of this, it's ironic that the 14th century really is a turning point in the world of fashion. Clothing changes more quickly in England than in any preceding century. Of course, most of this came at the top of society, but it is possible to see it trickling down to all levels. So, picture the scene and let me try to visualise things by introducing you to Geoffrey and Alice, two well-heeled noble gentlefolk much given to hanging around their grand hall surrounded by their own mini court. The year is 1300, and there's a lot of material about, and there's a distinct absence of shape. To be honest, there's very little difference between what the two of them are wearing, little difference between male and female dress. Their first layer is a linen shirt and linen braise, with a belt to keep the braise in place. Over that, there's a loose tunic hung from the shoulders, all the way down to the floor, pretty shapeless with some nice loose sleeves. Geoffrey is something of a klutz and keeps tripping over the edge of his gown and getting clipped around the ear hole for his pains from Alice, who's a bit of a trout. Their shoes are pointy, but not exceptionally so, and in fact there's no difference between the left and the right shoe. What Geoffrey and Alice's clothes lack for in shape, however, they make up for in colour. They wear differently coloured super tunics over their tunics in colours, contrasting with the tunic colour. Geoffrey's super tunic has shorter sleeves, so that he can show off the nice colour contrast. Alice's has no sleeves at all. Alice has done her very best to scandalise society with the sumptuousness of her mantle, but that's as far as it goes. As you look around the hall at the other people with them, you know that this pair are posh but really only by the quality of their clothing, not by its style. Their entourage is dressed pretty much in the same way. Every bloke, including Geoffrey, has the same hairdo as every other bloke, reasonably long flowing locks in a style set by the king. Alice, meanwhile, has gone for one of the surprisingly unattractive options on offer. She's sporting a wimple, which really doesn't have much to recommend it, material covering the neck and chin and a veil over the hair. On the tables, stretching away from the Lord's Table, as they have their main meal of the day, there's really not a lot of difference in style between Geoffrey and Alice and the estate workers. Now, 30 years later, it's 1330, Geoffrey and Alice have gone to visit their son Richard, who's something of a rising star at court, and his wife, Matilda. Richard and Matilda have discovered the button. Pretty much unknown in England before, they are both very... Very excited about this invention. Both Richard and Matilda are wearing a garment called a coat hardy, otherwise known as a kirtle. Actually, it's not radically different to what Dad's wearing, but it does have buttons all the way down the front, which means that it's much more figure-hugging. Geoffrey is looking slightly disapprovingly at Richard's shoes, which have noticeably long pointed toes. Matilda didn't want to upset the mother-in-law. She's done her hair in the ever popular ram's horn approach, i.e., a long plait each side of the head wound into a sort of bun over the ear. Now, my knowledge of hairdressing could be written on the inside of a ping pong ball, but I'm guessing that's just like Princess Leia a few millennia later. As far as clothes are concerned, she's dressed pretty much the same as Alice in the sense that she has a loose surcoat, but now it's covering a tightly fitting tunic and she's pushed the boat out in some ways. She's gone hell for leather for the latest craze, which is heraldic designs. Her surcoat is brightly coloured and cleverly embroidered with the family coat of arms. And her gown has a noticeably lower neckline, showing a suspicion of shoulder. And finally, she has rather long hanging sleeves. Now we're going to go forward still further to 1360 and see Richard and Matilda visit their own son, Henry, and his wife, Blanche. There's a certain amount of trendiness going on. Henry, in particular, has figure-hugging clothing that really shows off the contours of his body. Blanche has tight sleeves for her under-tunic with buttons all the way up to the elbows. Over that, for her super-tunic, she's wearing massive sleeves with dramatically dragged edges that go pretty much all the way to the floor. She's wearing an heraldic design with some pride and has a jewelled belt. Henry, meanwhile, is wearing a tight-fitting coat hardy which ends much higher, somewhere around his mid-thighs and he's wearing a tight-fitting pair of brightly coloured woolen hose with a belt low-slung on his hips. Matilda looked at him critically. Henry had acquired the family tendency towards porkiness and seems to have slimmed up dramatically since last time they met, which is not an occasion for congratulation, since Matilda suspects it's just that her son has taken to wearing a corset. As they're greeted and led up to the main table for lunch, Matilda's eyes are on stalks, and her husband's jaw knocks gently against his knees. They've spotted one of the younger squires, with his back towards them, talking to another squire, and he's a young man with an eye for fashion he's wearing party-coloured clothing, top left and bottom right red, and the opposing sides yellow. He is wearing the most outrageous pair of shoes, the infamous Krakow style, freshly imported from Bohemia, 20-inch toes, so long that the lad had not only stuffed them with moss, but also actually tied them to his garter, otherwise he'd trip over them. But that's not why Matilda's eyes are on stalks. No, the problem is, that she can quite clearly see the outlines of the bottom of this young man's arse. He's wearing a pair of tight woollen hose, and his doublet, a form of padded coat hardie is not just figure-hugging, it's practically non-existent, failing to come all the way down to his buttocks. In fact, this is called a paltook, a doublet where the hose are actually sewn directly into the lining of the doublet, rather than having his hose held up by his belt and braise. By the way, all parents out there, do you or have your children at any time worn the offence against all truth, light and justice called the onesie, otherwise known as a grown-up romper suit? If so, there's a precedent. In the Middle Ages, those hoes might also be given leather soles so that there was no need for shoes indoors. Anyway, when the young man's companion turns round, Richard's jaw heads further on south towards his toes. The young man is wearing a court piece, a doublet so short that you can not only see the bottom of his buttocks, you can see the complete wedding tackle through the brazen hose. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As you look around the hall, you'll see something of the influence of the rich and famous reflected in the clothes around you. As a man watching a game of chess, he's got a tunic that ends just above the knee and with pointy but not massively long shoes. He's wearing a hood which had a wimperly thing that covers his shoulders, and then hanging down from his head all the way down to the small of his back is a liripipe. Basically, this is a long, sharp end to his hat. He's wearing a belt, from which hangs his purse. Then there's a lady playing a musical instrument, and she's wearing a long, coat hardy, tight down to the hips, and then falling to the floor in a wider skirt. Worn over a tight tunic, with buttons down the front and flared sleeves to the coat hardy to show off her brightly coloured under-tunic. There are many in the hall who wouldn't look out of place in the 13th century with long gowns and surcoats. Let's leave these halls now and leave poor old Richard and Matilda to give their son and daughter-in-law a good old tongue-lashing about the fallen moral values blah blah blah. The point is that the variety and amount of change is now considerable. Obviously, the clothing worn by working folk and townspeople wouldn't be as out there as in the Lord's Hall or the Court of the King, but it would show their influence, just practically tailored to their own circumstance. In towns, for example, you will tend to find that coloured hose, doublets and shorter hemlines are more common and normal than in the country. Merchants' pictures show delightfully rakishly folded and wound-up hoods. And meanwhile, the change keeps coming. The chroniclers are predictably horrified. One complained that now people change their clothing every year. At the same time, he raged against things like the dragged sleeves or long hoods. The clothing of devils, he called it. Another wrote, Around that year, men, in particular noblemen and their squires, took to wearing tunics so short and tight that they revealed what modesty bids us to hide. This was the most astonishing thing for the people. It's this constant change that's probably the most horrifying thing. Gone was the stability and surety of earlier years. By the end of the century, we get something called the Hoopland. It was a long gown with very long, wide open sleeves, often dragged, sometimes with an extravagantly high collar. Hair fashions for women will change, much driven by Queen Philippa and her haynautters. For example, creating two plaits from your hair and creating two columns that run up and down your temples, framing your face. Or using a golden mesh in your hair. Or Anna Bohemia, Richard II's wife, and her love of a single large plait down the back. The basic rule is that married women don't wear their hair long, it's tied up. And while we're on Richard II, here's a man with an eye for fashion. To him is attributed the innovative accessory of the handkerchief, as then unknown. For this, if nothing else, I applaud him. He may have been a largely useless tyrant, but for the handkerchief, my saviour from many spillages and minor disasters, as well as the odd nose blow, I have to thank him. Now look, clothes really aren't my thing, but I've done my best. A couple of observations before we move on. Firstly, it's interesting that, by and large, it's the blokes who are hanging out the plumage. There is a bit of female work going on, but the ones showing the full package, as it were, were, by and large, the blokes. The second observation is that constant change, despite what the odd revisionist here and there will tell you, really isn't the medieval gig. This messing around with fashions is very new and quite horrifying to the mainly ecclesiastical chroniclers, but quite possibly less horrifying to the less censorious common man. Finally, back to the original theme, the power of clothes to distinguish your background and class. For royalty and the magnates, as the sumptuary laws made perfectly clear, clothing was a way of making it quite plain who was who. So when you hear that a peasant was allowed to wear only blanket or russet, you need to compare that with, say, Edward. Here's a description of Edward's clothing at a random event. Note that scarlet is the highest quality cloth, often from Lincolnshire, rather than a colour. A coat and mantle of scarlet cloth, garnished with silk fowl, trimmed with gold throughout, and decorated with birds on branches – The breast of the birds being embroidered, with two angels studded with pearls, holding a golden crossbow, crafted with silver gilt and a string of pearls. Now, we might suck our modern teeth in, in disapproval. Shake our heads at the richness, cheek by jowl with poverty, and wish that Edward had sold a few of those pearls, to set up a few cottages with a decent patch of land. But context is everything. The peasants for the most part accepted their lot in life as much as the lord in his castle. However much, they might wish they had been born the other side of the battlements, as it were. And the job of the lord and king was to be magnificent. It was absolutely expected of him, and he failed in his duty and was treated with contempt if he didn't do so. The modern idea of faded glory, of the aristocrat with the holy jumper and the common touch, is without resonance in the medieval world. Think of the bile poured on Edward II for his love of the pursuits of the common man such as hedging and ditching. So Edward III here was essentially just doing his job. Bummer, but someone had to do it. There were others for whom the way they dressed told a story about who they were. The obvious is churchmen, of course. The black habits of Dominican friars, or grey of Franciscans, for example. Another area was the increasing importance of livery, i.e. the robes handed out by a great lord to his affinity and household knights. If you wore the livery of a great magnate, it was both passport and badge of honour, with all the positives and negatives that that suggests. The power of the great man at your back, which could and frequently did, turn men into bullies and violent legalised thieves. On the other hand, the need to give the loyalty and commitment the tradition of feudalism demanded. But at the other end of the scale, it was equally true for prostitutes. Quite how we have reached 1360 without having talked about prostitution, I cannot imagine. And I can only offer my heartfelt apologies. I shall do my very best to bring prostitution into the story as much as humanly possible from now on. The tenuous link is that prostitutes in the 14th century began to be the subject of regulation, if you like, and part of this was clothing. They were required to wear striped or yellow hoods. We begin to see the introduction of red light districts, though that term won't appear until the 19th century. But we do begin to see an effort to keep prostitutes in specific areas, a bit like industrial zoning, if you like. In London, then, prostitutes were only allowed in one area of the Aldwych, and even then, on only one street. Cock Lane. And before you begin to construct reasons why Cock Lane was so called, for example, because it was well known as a chicken breeding area, that sort of thing, no, Cock Lane was so called exactly for the reason that it was peopled by prostitutes and their clients. This is in fact a common phenomenon in English towns, the naming of lanes after activities. And there is no reason why the earthier activities shouldn't be exactly the same so there are plenty of grope lanes as well. By and large, these are an abbreviation, where the original included the C word, which in my upbringing, rightly or wrongly, is the nuclear option in the lexicon of swearing, and far too nuclear for a podcast. But it didn't used to be quite such a nuclear word, apparently more thought of as rather vulgar, hence the plethora of grope lanes. And as we become more squeamish, we change them. Some went to Grape Lane. The Grope Hm Lane in Oxford is now known as Grove Street. The last recorded use of the full Grope Hm name was in the 16th century. Anyway, I am digressing from my digression to back to the original digression. Outside London proper, the key district was Southwark, the area at the southern end of the London Bridge. Here were the infamous stews, at the time run by Flemish women and on the face of it offering cleanliness, which I was always taught lay next to godliness, but in the stews of Southwark lay next to something else entirely. But let's make the point that the stews did involve bathing as well as slap and dickle, and we can put to bed those beliefs that medieval people were afraid of baths. They weren't. It just wasn't as convenient and easy as it is today. One more thing about the Southwark stews, There was no stigma attached to the men that used them. The marriage vows required fidelity only of the female partner, so the bloke was quite at liberty to hop off to the stews. Clergymen generally took again the general idea of sex outside marriage, but since the Bishop of Winchester owned Southwark and made a tidy bit of cash from the rental of the stews, didn't do to apply the sanctimonious attitude too rigorously in practice. In the same year as Edward created the sumptuary laws, another much longer-lasting law was passed, allowing commissioners of the peace, or justices of the peace, as they would become known, to try felonies. Now, I have this overpowering feeling that I've talked about this before, but simply can't find it in my scripts. But if I have, I grovel with apology. Anyway, English kings, pretty much since good old Richard the Lionheart, have had this dilemma about local government. Do they try to rule direct, or do they partner with their big buddies, the magnates, or other local power structures? On the one hand, the whole idea of the king's office is the delivery of the king's peace, justice. This is his job. Giving up control to local magnates might well end up not being the rule of law, but the rule of petty self-interest. And so, through Henry II and Edward I, we see the desperate attempt to deliver justice from the centre. Justice is an heir, trail bastard inquiries, where directly appointed representatives of the king come down and deliver light, truth and justice, in the form of a common law. As in the time of Henry III, they all work hard to make sure that the key agents of local royal government, the sheriff, is not in the magnate's pocket. On the other hand, this was surely swimming against the tide. Hate it or loathe it, the magnates dominated many localities. They paid retainers to their affinity. They held the greatest landholdings. Why fight it? Just go with it, sit back on the throne and throw another party. But in fact, the answer Edward came to was to recruit the gentry. And despite ins and outs and some pretty determined dithering along the way... Subsequent kings never gave up on this concept and it becomes the guiding principle of English governance until the reforms of the 19th century. We'll have a much longer chat before long about the political communities of the localities. But for the moment, just remember that the gentry are basically the lot that sit just below the Knights of the Shire. They are the natural leaders of local communities because by and large they have no wider interest unlike greater men around them who may have manners in many places over the country. Justices of the Peace, or JPs, become the central element in the provision of justice. Locally based magistrates implementing the vast majority of royal justice. Every so often, Edward and his successors made sure that there are visitations made by central justices, twice yearly assizes held by royal justices and sergeants at law. There is without doubt corruption, there are no doubt some JPs who were in the pocket of a relevant magnate. It's been argued that Edward was basically giving away royal power to the localities, because he didn't have the strength of will to hold on in the face of pressures of war and the consequences of the Black Death. But an alternative reading is that Edward very cleverly, whether intended or simply driven by necessity, co-ops the gentry and the mercantile classes in the towns into a more inclusive ruling elite. By so doing, he broadens the base of authority of the Crown and broadens the allies who are looking after the Crown's interests. Just to finish off the legislation thing, there are a few other bits of legislation in 1362-3 that are well worth mentioning. The slightly dull one is the statue of purveyance. More promises from the king that he'd obey the rules and pay for stuff when his officers made enforced purchases. Really, it's only relevant in noting that purveyance is a constant irritant and a constant cause of conflict and will remain so for many centuries yet. Another one is a fab fact. It's in these years that Edward requires jewellers to put their unique mark on precious metals from which the hallmark will develop. And the last is rather more famous, the statute of pleading. Here's a bit of it for you. Great mischiefs have happened to many people of the realm because the laws, customs and statutes of the realm are not commonly known because they are pleaded, shown and judged in the French language, which is too unknown. From now on then, English would be the language used in the courts back from the dead. From here on in, English is on an inexorable march back to dominance. Already now Parliament is opened in English, and although the language of the court remained French, all the greatest men spoke English as well as French. Wycliffe, Chaucer, Gower are all on their way, so watch this space. Right, I think that's enough for now. It just remains for me to thank Andrew, J.D., Gwen, Elizabeth, Ian, David and Roy for your very kind donations. And to thank everyone for listening. By the way, comments on iTunes are of course always wonderful to see. I really love them. And sometimes also for what people call themselves. So, thanks to Cuthbert Two Cheeks, for example, whichever cheeks you're referring to. Very kind. Good luck and have a great week.